take a seat. Well, good morning again. My name is Georgia, and I'm a deacon and staff member here at Citizens, and I'm really excited about walking through the third week of Story of God with everybody. During the past two weeks, we've been listening and responding to this story from the Bible. And while we often come to the Bible looking for answers or doctrines or methods or how-tos, at heart, the Bible is a story with a beginning, a middle, and an end. And so once a year here at Citizens, we take time to experience the Bible as a story. If today's your first Sunday, welcome. We're especially glad you're with us. Um, Just some intro that we share at the beginning of every week. All of the stories we'll hear today do come from the Bible. And we have some people in this room who believe that everything we'll hear in this story today is true. And hopefully we have others in the room who don't believe any of it is true or have a hard time with some of the things that we'll hear. And this is a really good thing. Our different backgrounds will add a lot to our time together. As Tim was saying, uh, we come from different places and our voices um, from whatever background we're coming from are important and valuable. Um, But hopefully our kind of shared purpose is the same to discover, to learn, to build relationship. Great stories challenge us and inspire us to grow. And when they're experienced together, we get to participate in community. Today, feel the freedom to challenge the story. No emotion or question or thought is off limits. This is a space where wrestling and doubting are really welcome. And I'm not going to try to change your mind. That's not what this time is for. Also, this week, let's hear from some new folks. If you spoke quite a few times last week, try to give others a head start at responding to the questions. Please don't feel the need to fill the silence quickly. Some of us need a bit more time to process before we speak. Um, So take just a second to think, did I speak a lot last week? And if you answered yes, just give yourself pause before speaking this week and make a little room for others to share. In terms of rules, remember there's really just one. Only discuss information that has emerged from narratives that have already been told, either what we've heard today or in the past two weeks. If you know something from later in the story, please don't jump ahead, even though it's really tempting. Just let the story unfold. It keeps the playing field a little bit more even for everybody and helps us experience the story as it's told. We'll be listening and talking together for a little over an hour, so feel free to get up as you need to. Uh, Bathrooms are up the stairs and coffee's in the back. You can stand in the back, stretch your legs if you need to. So let's start with a recap of what has happened in the story so far, what we've heard the past two weeks. A being called God created all things. The story says that God alone always does what is good, right, and perfect. God created human beings in his image and gave them everything they needed to live full and happy lives. The first humans were called Eve and Adam. Even Adam had one rule, 
do not eat from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. If they did, God told them they would die. A serpent came, who we later learned was Satan, and he tempted them to eat the fruit and disobey God. And Adam and Eve did. God brought punishment to them, and they felt ashamed of what they had done. But God did shower them with grace and promised them that one day a greater man than them would come and set all things right. But despite God's mercy and grace, and despite even Adam's shame, humanity didn't really improve. They were dangerously broken. The next few stories after the creation and fall stories, which Crystal read last week, illustrated the extent of humanity's brokenness. We saw Cain murdering his brother Abel, Noah and the flood, the Tower of Babel. So humanity is hurting and killing each other, destroying the earth, rejecting God. People were so bad that God decided to destroy everything with a flood. But one man, Noah, found favor with God. And so God decided to begin again with him. Unfortunately, things didn't go much better with Noah's descendants, though. So God chose to have a special relationship with one man, Abraham, and promised to save the world through his offspring, particularly through his son Isaac. God would make this happen. This nation would be his people, and God promised to give them back all that had been lost as a result of sin. He would save them, not just for their sake, but so that the whole world would be saved through them. God would bless the world through blessing Abraham and his family. This week, we are going to have a couple times of turning to our neighbor to share. So before we begin with week three stories, turn to somebody beside you and take 30 seconds each, 30 seconds one person, 30 seconds another person, to share one thought or feeling that, we, that you've been mulling over this week based on the stories that you've heard so far. And if this is your first week with us, you can just share a thought or feeling you're having as you're entering the stories today. So, ready, set, go. All right, we're gonna come back together. Today, we aren't actually starting with a scene as we have the other weeks, but rather a bridge story. Um, if you like reading, like following along visually, um, we'll begin on the papers that you had on your sheet, seat right now. I'm going to give one paragraph that shares a lot of information, spanning a pretty long time period, and I'll read it slowly, so make sure you're tracking with me. This is an important part of the story. Abraham and Sarah's son Isaac eventually had his own son named Jacob. His name was later changed to Israel, meaning struggler with God. From then on, the Hebrew people would be called the people of Israel after Jacob. Jacob had 12 sons. One of his sons, named Joseph, ended up living in Egypt. Joseph's life is an interesting tale for another time. At one point in his story, Joseph invited his family to escape a horrible famine that covered all the land. Joseph's family, the Israelites, grew and grew while living in Egypt. Over the course of many years, the people of Israel became a large nation, numbering hundreds of thousands. 
But after Joseph died, the king of Egypt named Pharaoh really feared Israel because of their great numbers. He treated them horribly and made Israel his slaves. Their slavery lasted 400 years. But God promised he would eventually bless his beloved people. So now we're moving into Act 3, Scene 2. God's people cried out for deliverance from slavery in Egypt. God heard their cries and remembered his covenant with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. God used a man named Moses to rescue the Israelites from slavery. He sent Moses to warn Pharaoh that terrible things would happen to the Egyptians if they didn't release God's people. But Pharaoh was arrogant and didn't listen. So God sent a series of horrible plagues to punish the Egyptians. But these plagues didn't affect the Israelites. God turned water to blood. He filled the nation with frogs, mosquitoes, and flies. God killed livestock, covered people and animals with boils, destroyed the land with hail and locusts, and brought great darkness over the land. But in spite of these horrific events, Pharaoh would not let the Israelites go. So God told them that he would send one more plague. He would send an angel of death that would take the life of every firstborn person and animal in Egypt. But God provided a way for the firstborn of Israel to be spared. He instructed them to take a firstborn male lamb without defect and sacrifice it to him without breaking any of its bones. Then the Israelite people were to take the blood from the lamb and put it on the doorpost of their homes. If the angel of death saw the blood of the lamb on the house, he would pass over and not demand the life of the firstborn son. So the people of Israel did what God told them to do. At midnight, God sent the death angel through Egypt, taking the life of all the firstborn, but passing over the homes that had blood on their doorposts. The Egyptians wept over this tragedy and begged the Israelites to leave finally releasing them from their slavery. And now Israel, a large nation of over 2 million people, set out to return to the land God had promised to Abraham. But Pharaoh wanted revenge. He sent his armies after Israel to catch them and kill them. When the Israelites approached the Red Sea, they thought they were trapped by the waters and would be caught by the Egyptians. But God split the waters so that the Israelites could cross the river on dry ground. When Pharaoh's armies tried to cross behind them, God brought a huge wind that blew the water back over them. The Egyptian army was completely wiped out, and all of Israel was saved. So we're going to start with our first longer dialogue of today. What themes does this story continue from earlier stories? Anything about God or humanity or the world? And are there any new themes that you notice?
the Egyptians' conduct and Pharaoh's approach to uh, keeping the Israelites enslaved certainly did uh, prove that Satan remained very active um, in the world, you know, shaping all these lives. Okay, so we see a, a thread of Satan, yeah. Satan's presence and power. Let's do the first time where the conflict between Israelites and the people against other people. Okay, yeah. You've seen like brother against brother, or you've seen like internal strife. But this is, a, this is like an introduction of us versus them, you know? Yeah. Um, or maybe them versus us. <laughs> I mean, the Israelites are enslaved, but that feels uh, <coughs> new and is often, I think, for, for us, like, or for me, a challenging theme. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Yeah, people group against people group, us and them. All right, maybe one more for person can share. It made me think about Pharaoh and his insecurity uh, and like Cain and Abel um, and just like out of his insecurity came like death and treating somebody very mm. and it's the same way that we see now with Pharaoh treating the people of Israel sometimes mm. uh, and just even to go a little bit farther how his actions not only cost him pain, but everybody else um, in that, like, the Egyptians, right? But it makes me, I, I don't know, like, a lot of unfairness came up to me of, like, why did he, like, yeah, they were treated badly, um, but, like, was everybody, like, all the Egyptians, did all of the Egyptians treat the people of Israel bad? Um, so, like, what if they were kind people and their sons died? And they suffered because of the actions of one person. And I think, like, I continue to see that in the mm. stories that we've read so far. Um, so, yeah, it's a lot of unfairness and injustice. That's a lot of Thanks, Mel. Yeah, it's a hard one. Yeah, there's, there's a leader who has a lot of power, and then their decisions negatively or positively, but often negatively, affect a lot of other people. How do you feel about God's use of plagues? I agree with no. I think it's like kind of harsh. I like to kill everything, like all the like bodies of people. So I just think that was a little bit harsh. I feel like he could have given them like more of a second chance or like more warning instead of just like wreaking havoc on their whole entire land. Yeah, and it felt like God was punishing all of the Egyptians when it really, as Mel said, felt like Pharaoh's calling the shots. Firstborn, 
And it, it, it's really, it, like, one thing we don't really get from the story is, like, are people, is there political pressure on Pharaoh to be like, hey, the river is blood, actually? Like, can we, can we talk? Like, maybe, maybe let these people go? Like, we don't know what the, what the conversations that were happening, you know, in Egypt. Sure. But yeah, I mean they're pretty. They're intense. These blanks. Yeah. And they are very like general, you know. Yeah. Somebody who lives by the river. And like, yes, no water for me today because this is blood. Yeah, but it does feel like there's like a, a ramping up, which is interesting. So yeah, in the first nine plagues, um, apparently the effects were only felt by the Egyptians and not the Israelites. But for the 10th plague, Israel had to do something. Um, They had to take action in order to protect themselves from this plague. What do you feel is the significance between the first nine and then this last one where, where there's that distinction or any other distinctions about it? I don't know that that's distinct. If my water source is tainted and I'm one group or the other, that's both my water source. Mm. If the harvest, like killing livestock, that will affect not, I don't think just me as one group, I feel like it affects both. Yeah, I agree with you. And yeah, the story says that the Israelites weren't affected, but it, in trying to make sense of it, it feels like they would be. Yeah, that's hard. I have a memory, and I will own it, that it may not be quite right. But as I recall historically, each of the plagues represented and undermined a uh, Egyptian god. And God's power and presence and protection was illustrating he is the all-powerful, all-omniscient, and all-compassion. So my impression and understanding is that each time these were occurring, the erosion of a belief system by Pharaoh and the people would have eventually softened their heart. And with the tenth plague, I mean, the loss of of children, I mean, can that not be the ultimate in, yeah. you know, God saying, you know, I can do and I will do, and uh, move on from this to previous Yeah, that's helpful insight. Thank you, Linda. Um, yeah, that there's a correlation of God saying, you have this system of belief and and these gods that you have kind of constructed and created to um, make sense of the world and yet, um, yeah, wanting to demonstrate his presence and power and, and reality over those other gods. No, go, go for it. Like, at least in third, well, I guess second time, I missed last week, but the, at least second time that we see God as creator, but also as the creator and like, that's just a concept that's really hard for me to understand why that's okay, but that, like, the God that we serve creates and 
just who he is. He's able to do both of those things. Yeah. So like the very harshness of death is the like part of creation. It's like it has a twin. Of they yeah can do whatever he wants, and those are two options. Yeah, that's really. I'm glad you shared that, Vicky. Yeah. The distinction with the tenth plague is that it would it asks for faith from the Israelites, and these people have been slaves for 400 years, and so they were probably very rusty in their practice and pursuit of Yahweh. Like, did they remember him? Like, how much this is they uh, have not yet received a lot of like ritual. Um, they had a family history but not a ritual history and so they weren't doing you know uh, not skip they were they didn't have a temple they didn't have sacrifice they didn't do any of those things and so they're seeing Yahweh for the first time too in these nine plagues and then the invitation at the end is like you are also vulnerable <laughs> you know you're not it's not just like God picking sides um, there is a vulnerability that the Israelites are under judgment Kind of also, um, this isn't just like a, a rivalry between nations. Like, they have to do something too. They have to, mm-hmm. and do something that involves the killing of the creature. Um, yeah, it just feels, feels pretty sharp. It also stands out to me that the actual, say, the theory could have been done by Christian too. So just like, mm-hmm. got the blood of the door post, you're good to go. Like, um, now, like, did they know how to do it? Yeah. Um, but it was like, that does something about Yeah. Well, thanks, everybody, for sharing. We're going to move on, but grateful for everybody who spoke. Act 3, scene 3, the law. Two months after leaving Egypt, the Israelites set up camp at the bottom of Mount Sinai. God descended onto the mountain, and a thick cloud of smoke covered the mountain. God called Moses into his presence on the top of the mountain. There God spoke to Moses, saying, Tell my people this. You saw how I carried you on eagles' wings and rescued you from Egypt. Now if you obey me and keep my covenant, you will be my treasured people, a kingdom of priests set apart to represent me. When Moses came down the mountain, he told the people what God had said. And they all agreed, we will do everything that God asked us to do. We promise to follow all his commands. After that, God gave Moses instructions on how the people could return to following his ways and live in freedom, a life lived close to God and under his protection. God himself wrote the instructions on stone tablets. The instructions were called the Ten Commandments. This is what they said. I am your God who rescued you from slavery in Egypt. Put me above everything else. Do not worship other things. Do not misuse or disrespect my name. Remember to set aside the seventh day each week to rest and worship me. Honor your parents. Don't murder or steal or lie. Do not sleep with anyone but your husband or wife. 
Be faithful. Do not lust after what others have. Be satisfied with what I give you. God gave more instructions, called laws, to give to Israel. These laws gave specific details about things like how to treat neighbors and enemies, how to handle conflicts, what is fair punishment, when to work and rest, when to celebrate and worship, and what offerings are acceptable to God. These laws helped Israel know exactly how they were called to be different from the nation of Egypt, the only home they had known, and the nation surrounding the promised land. But the people did not want to live within God's boundaries and rebelled again, calling these instructions a new kind of slavery. They said they would rather go back to Egypt. At one point, while Moses was away receiving instructions for building a worshiping place for God, they built for themselves a golden calf to worship in God's place. Because God always does what is good, right, and perfect. He could not overlook their sins. As in the garden, the ultimate punishment for sin was death. A life must be given to pay for each person's disobedience. How then could God not punish Israel and kill them all? God deeply loved his people, so he provided a way for them to substitute the life of an innocent animal in place of their own. People would bring pure animals to God, asking him to transfer their sins to the helpless animal. The animal was killed, and its blood was given in place of the guilty person. Eventually, God would ask his people to build something called a temple, a building where God's presence would dwell among his people and receive their sacrifices. Sacrifices were given for known sins all the time along with sacrifices of thanksgiving and praise. However, there was one day of the year where a sacrifice was made for all sin, known and unknown. After performing a series of rituals, the priests would enter a special part of the temple called the Holy of Holies, behind a curtain that symbolized the separation between God, who always does what is good, right, and perfect, and the sinful world. Here the priest would offer a sacrifice for himself and for the people. This system of sacrifice continued for hundreds of years. Sacrifices for sin had to be given day after day, year after year, and God accepted them as atonement for sin. So let's begin our second dialogue. In this story, God makes a covenant with the people of Israel. Where else have we seen God make a covenant? And what's unique about this particular covenant? Feels more explicit. God's like, we're gonna try to get it right this time. So it's kind of a he gives the people who listen say that he'll obey me. He's my governor. Um, whereas in the previous time, it's like, what if the flood is going to all cover? Uh, flood the earth and flood out the community again. And again, all those with Abraham, like, what do you call it? Um, they didn't have to. 
yeah, it feels like there were previously two parties, but God kind of carried a bit more of the weight, and now there's a bit more responsibility of, of the people themselves. What do you think God meant by saying you will be a kingdom of priests? I guess that's the other piece that feels different about this covenant. It's like not only what basically Israel needs to do, but that they're actually having more unique fully a narrow goal. That it's like explaining the idea that God has always said all nations are going to be blessed. But now you're actually going to be like, like I have a priest that you guys like an intermediary, like someone who is in the church. Like I have a priest in other contexts, like even the Egyptians, like they have priests, and those are the priests who like they commune with the gospel to ask for fortune and favor for the people of Egypt. Mm-hmm. And like so now there's some way that God is giving you this type of model of like I'm giving you the people that I And I think that's There's a way to dwell with God, like in the garden, um, and it's that's not given after. Um, what? There's no. Still, just like one person maybe hearing from God. <laughs> I don't know how Noah talked to the Lord or Abraham, but just hearing from the Lord in different signs. But this is like an actual way to um, be in the presence of God, so that God can dwell with His people. So when I think about kingdom of priests, it's it's like hinged upon that being able to dwell with the mm-hmm. Lord so that you're not just uh, expecting, waiting for, yeah. Uh, I don't know, it says priest and we, we think intermediary, but in my mind when I hear kingdom of priest, it's like we are the intermediary. So there could be an intermediary. Um, I don't know if that's how I think of it. There's an equality. It's not typical where like, everyone's a priest. So, as opposed to being like a kingdom with a few priests, like all of them are like every single individual. Which then goes to the like thinking you know, like the commandments and the laws, like where there's a burden of holiness and obedience on all the citizens, um, as opposed to just a few or just a representative. Feels um, like. Establishing like an organized religion now, well, which, like it makes me wonder what the Israelites were doing before this for generations. Like, it's like, oh yeah, like, you're my cousin, and I guess you know, we'll follow this guy. But like now, there's, there's like these rites and rituals, and all of a sudden, it's like, oh, we gotta do a holy of holies, and have a new holiday this year. We're ridiculous. Have our sins forgiven. It's 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 interesting. Like, I wonder. How they reacted to that, um, like hearing, yeah, becoming a kingdom of priests and stuff. It's, it's like, you can have that concept of like, okay, what's so different now? Like, I don't, you know, I don't know if I would get it. Either. Um, yeah, it's a lot more put on them. Um, hopefully, a sense that they are special and valued and have like a, a real purpose. But yeah, maybe that didn't feel so great, and and maybe the the laws were hard to receive too. Um, yeah, what do you guys think was the purpose of the Ten Commandments and laws? Um, what do you feel like they show us about God, and what do you 
show what do they show us about um, humans too Yo, so after Josh shared that, it got me thinking the build of the golden calf is, to me, like from this perspective, I feel like the God character is wrongfully upset because mm -hmm. these people for hundreds of years saw neighboring worship forms as, oh, this is that God. Oh, we build a statue to this god and like bow down to it, and that was a way to worship. So while Moses was away receiving the instructions for them to do what they think is the natural right thing to approach this god in worship, it feels like the god character is like wrongfully upset because the instructions weren't yet given. It's like yeah, it's like anyone getting mad at someone else, but this person has no clue. I don't think I thought about it that way before. I think the I think the Ten Commandment instructions have been given, but the Moses had gone back up to get the instructions for like the temple. But yeah, it it does feel frustrating for sure. I I always come up this point of the story. Like here's one way to come up with it. For instance, like Noah is righteous. Abraham is righteous. Like this is what they learn it's like, you know, we're talking about this covenant, and it's a kingdom of priests, and this is like after the Israelites have sort of, like, been, been dragged into grace and, like, dragged out of this slavery situation, and they're like, ugh, all these rules, this is worse than being a slave, and you're like, it's definitely not. <laughs> you're like, I can't kill my neighbor, I wish I was just a slave again. You don't, and that's ridiculous. And I love it, like, yeah, that's that's people, huh? Like, that, we're like this. I'm like this. Um, and so, like, I feel like when you say, like, what does this show us about humans? Is I'm like, this is just such a, um, like, such a clarifying and, like, funny and strange story that to me is so illustrative of, like, what are people like? like yeah, we're like this, you know? And I, yeah, I, I, I do think it's funny that Moses is like, I'm gonna go up the mountain, you guys just hang out, and you're like, those are not really, we, like, should we get a new God? Like, I know, <laughs> I know the last God, like, pulled us out of Egypt, and did a thousand plagues, and carried us through the water, and that was all cool, but like, Moses is gone, I don't know, let's go back. Like, it's just, it's so funny. Like, how immediate they're like, well, yeah. Yeah, that's great, Hampton. Why does God keep giving people chances? Why does he think it's going to be different? Like, like, why does he give us this responsibility if we are so broken and so prone to these things? Like, and he's just so relentless and like, he's like not just wiping every place. And he wipes most everyone out, but like,
last question before we move on. Um, turn to your neighbor and share. At this point in the story, do you believe that God would remove his covenant from Israel if they didn't obey him? We talked about kind of this one feel, this covenant feels a little bit more conditional maybe. Um, yeah, turn to your neighbor and share for a few seconds. Okay, we're going to come back together. All right, so this is our last story for today. This is Act 3, still Act 3, <laughs> Scene 4, The Kings and the Prophets. The people of Israel continued on their journey back to the promised land. God led them by a great cloud during the day and a pillar of fire at night. When this cloud moved, they followed it, and they set up camp wherever it stopped. But when the people of God got closer to Canaan, the promised land, they would not enter the land because they were afraid of the people who lived there. They didn't trust that God was in control and working for their good. God's punishment for not trusting him was to make the Israelites wander in the desert for 40 years. This was a time filled with struggle and complaints against Moses and God. As Moses neared the end of his life, he reminded Israel about all of God's promises, laws, and commands. Moses challenged them, You must love God with all your heart, mind, soul, and strength, for he is your life. Then Moses said to Joshua, the next leader of Israel, in front of all the people, Be strong and courageous. Now you will lead these people into the land God promised us. Do not be afraid or discouraged. God will never leave you or forget about you. Finally, after wandering the desert for 40 years, God led the people of Israel to recapture the promised land from their enemies. As the Israelites entered the land, God told them to drive out all the people who lived there because they were evil. God gave the people of Israel many victories in battle and completely honored his promises to them. But the people didn't listen to God's command. They did not drive out all the other people and eventually started worshiping false gods. This false worship led them into many other sins. Because of their sin and disobedience, God removed his protection and allowed Israel to be overpowered and punished by foreign nations. When the people suffered, they would come back to God and beg for his help and forgiveness. God would once again forgive them and send leaders called judges to lead them in defeating their enemies. They would once again conquer their enemies at every border. In victory, Israel would worship God. But soon after, the people, often the next generation, would turn away from God again and live their own way. This was the pattern from generation to generation. The people of Israel would come to God and worship him when they needed help, but when things were going well, they returned to worshiping other things. The Bible describes these times of rebellion as a time when everyone did what was right in his or her own eyes. Since kings ruled over other nations, the people of Israel eventually complained to God, saying, we want a human king that we can see to rule over us. They thought this would answer their problems. God gave the people what they wanted and allowed them to be ruled by a succession of human kings. The first king they chose was Saul, 
But Saul disobeyed God, and so God removed his blessing. Then God searched for a king who would love him and live in his ways. He chose a young boy named David. When David grew up and was made king, God blessed him greatly and Israel along with him. Even though David greatly sinned against God, God still called him a man after God's own heart. God made yet another covenant, this one with David. God promised David that one of his heirs would be a king who would rule forever as king over God's people and also king over the entire earth. David's son Solomon was also a great king who was very wise, but later on Solomon married foreign wives who led him to worship foreign gods. Because of his failures, God allowed civil war to break out and God's people were divided. The line of kings descended from David and continued to rebel against God and his authority. God sent prophets to be his messengers, to challenge the kings and the people to obey God and fulfill their role to be a light to the nations and bring release to them. But time and time again, they refused to listen to these prophets. Over time, the Israelites were forced out of the promised land and sent into exile, once again slaves of a foreign nation. For centuries, God's people would be under the oppressive thumb of one world power after another. God continued to send prophets to the people, even in exile. These prophets told of a future hope that one day God would make a new covenant with his rebellious people. He would do this by sending a great savior, sometimes called an eternal king, sometimes called Messiah or anointed one, sometimes mighty God, sometimes suffering servant. This Messiah would fulfill the covenant himself, He would redeem God's people from exile. He would save God's people, and he would rule over God's creation forever with justice and peace. But despite the warnings of the prophets, the people of Israel stopped listening to God. And God stopped talking for 400 years. So we end today kind of where we began with Israel again finding themselves as slaves to foreign empire. We see that God has been involved in both Israel's judgment and in their redemption. Maybe similar to what Vicky was saying of God being involved in creation and destruction. What does this teach us about God? What does this teach us about history? that God has a hand in both of these things. I think that God is patient, you know. I would have you know, a long time ago. But it also makes me think back to the very beginning. Mm-hmm. Um, it's kind of like a little father of like, hey, yeah, this is what I want to do also more, right? Like, we could have seen ourselves all of this
we hear a lot of unconditional love, it there seems to be a lot of conditions, right? So it's kind of easy to that. And um, yeah, so back to the beginning, we could have saved ourselves from that. And that was a few original plans. Um, it sounds like there's going to be some hope in the future, yet 400 years from now. Yeah. Yeah. It's like a way of, I cannot break the promise of my covenant to you, yet I'm still going to with you, so I'm just going to let you be in the blood. Thanks so much, everybody, for sharing. Um, yeah, we're going to have a meal after our gathering today. And um, I know the speaking parts were pretty long today, and so we didn't have as much time for discussion. But I invite you to just stick around for the meal and just be able to have more of this sort of conversation with each other. Um, as we close, yeah, just want to say that I'm grateful for everybody who shared aloud, but even if you didn't share, grateful that you were in this room. Your presence is really valuable and important. Um, let me go ahead and pray for us. God, we are grateful that you have been present with us in this room. 
as we discuss, as we listen, as we really just wrestle with who you are, who we see you um, communicating yourself to be from long, long ago, um, and the tensions that it feels like that creates with who we may have thought you to be or who we see you as in the New Testament. Um, yeah, we have a hard time reconciling um, the stories that we've heard um, with who we even may want you to be. Um, so we ask that um, you would just soften us um, today and this week, um, that we would allow you to reveal yourself to us um, as who you truly are, um, that you would help us to let go of ideas of who we have thought you to be and who we um, would like you to be, um, and that whoever you are, um, your character, your presence, your power, your actions in the past, your promises in the future, that all of those things would um, hopefully feel like good news to us. Um, I'm grateful for the folks in this room and ask that you would keep binding us together in community as we wrestle and learn and listen. We pray all of this in Jesus' name. Amen.